you're not familiar with what the conversation, the discourse is like in the world of atheism or in the world of Islam. Mm -hmm. So for example, in the world of Islam, it's very much a lot of machismo. It's a lot of smack talking, right? And I'm not saying it's good, but it's the reality of in the world of say debating Muslims and whatnot, if you don't come with confidence and some degree of machismo, it's sort of like the, the Muslim, the Arab mind is not gonna listen to you or pay any attention to you. But if you show that you're not afraid, you're not scared, you're, the insults don't bother, you don't care, they're a little more apt, I think, to listen to something like that. Welcome to a conversation with Jay Dyer on manhood and masculinity. My name's Paul Robson, and I've had Jay Dyer on my radar for quite some time. One of my friends really follows his work and has been doing so for a long time, but I haven't really had the reason to dive into him until I saw a survey which showed that of people converting to the Orthodox faith, there's a lot of them that are coming from influencers online, especially on YouTube. And number one on the list of names of people that are having this impact is Jay Dyer. And we're not just talking about a small little trickle of people here. We're talking of tens of thousands of people that are coming into Orthodox Christianity, a really major life decision based on the impact and the work of this person. And so Jay Dyer is often seen as a controversial person. I've seen some people use the word toxic. Um, and so I was really interested in who is this guy? Where is he coming from? And, and, and what is he all about? And so I decided to contact him and asked him if he'd up for having a chat. And he was up for that. Well, I was very happy about that. And I've only just watched a couple of his conversations, which has been his apologetics work, the discussions. Um, one of them was like a really polemical, aggressive debate. Another one uh, that I saw was incredibly valuable. Stefan, Stefan Molyneux, a discussion with a guy who I've, I've been following Stefan Molyneux for some time, long before I came a Christian. And so I really actually enjoyed listening to them talking about it at a very high level uh, in a masculine, respectful and clear way as well. So um, I thought, let's, let's, let's have a chat with this guy and, and yeah, I'll let you decide for yourself what you think of, of, of Jay uh, uh, from the conversation here. I really found him to be open, engaged, uh, and also um, no filter as to not saying stuff that could be politically incorrect or something like that. I actually made a mistake right at the beginning of our interview. It took Jay... No, I can't say less than one minute. It took him one minute and three seconds into our conversation to actually correct me on a mistake that I made, uh, which I really appreciated. I think it's great that he's a man who, will, if he hears something that's wrong, and he actually stood up in the defense of Catholics, Roman Catholics, who would normally be debating with. So I thought that was great. So uh, before, just last thing before I give you the discussion with Jay, then I'll mention that Manifesto Core uh, is the organization that I'm running. We have a, a network of online men's groups which is really made for men who appreciate being men and masculinity. And we focus these groups on setting goals and supporting each other in reaching them. So if that's interesting, then uh, check it out. Otherwise, here comes Jay Dyer. Jay Dyer, great to have you on board for a conversation about man masculinity from an orthodox perspective. Thank you, man. Glad to be here. Uh, sorry we couldn't do it back when we originally planned to. Things got really heavy. It's Christmas time and you know, I'm around, we're, we're uh, traveling and around family and all that. So I'm trying to juggle a whole bunch of stuff and, uh, but I'm glad to be here. Great. Yeah. It's a busy time. I actually just sent out a, a, a message 
uh, to our network saying like, as a man, you want to be engaging yourself in the Christian tradition, celebrating it, uh, being a part of it. It's something that really unifies us as a society, as a family and communities. So I, I think it's an important thing. And so I'm just happy that we you have the opportunity to have the talk here. Um, and I think it's a subject that's more relevant than it's ever been almost. It continues to gain relevancy. Um, I just saw the Catholic Church. You've also been posting a little bit about this, right? The Catholic Church decided to bless homosexual marriages. And so there's a lot of things that have been very stable for a long time that well, like, are unions, shifting at the moment. Unions, not yet marriages. So they'll, oh, they'll, make a, they'll make a big fuss about that and say, no, not marriages, just unions. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm not used the, to... <laughs> that's the step to the next phase. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. My apologies. Yeah, I, I'm not so good at so that precise language. Yet. I'm not a philosopher myself. No, I'm just um, saying that that's they're gonna say if you say that yeah. you're not being honest because it does, it specifically says not marriages, but mm -hmm. unions. The blessing of a union or a couple mm -hmm. is the step before the blessing of the marriage. So it's just an incremental plan to bring that in. Things are sliding and and shifting and breaking apart. Right. It seems like and. Uh, what we want to do today in this conversation is, and what I want to do is to get your take on if going like, if we go really back into the oldest ideas in Christianity and the Orthodox tradition of what it means to be a man, then what do, what do we take? So I thought what it, where it would start actually is, are there particular church fathers in the Christian Orthodox tradition, which you think have spoken to you and have been relevant regarding the understanding of man, woman, and the relationship between them? Well, I think many of them have spoken to it in a relevant way, particularly through Genesis, right? So we need to either believe the Genesis account or not. And one thing that's interesting is that, the, you know, marriage itself really is grounded in the book of Genesis. And so if Genesis isn't relevant to us, if it's all, you know, purely allegory or something like that, then there's not really any reason for societies to have this idea of marriage so it's intimately tied to divine revelation doesn't really make sense unless you're i don't know trying to gain you know some if you're a woman trying to marry an a-list actor and get half of his uh you know stash i guess marriage can make sense and <laughs> that's in that way but mm -hmm. you know in the modern secular atheist sense i don't really see why anyone would get married it just seems like a formality that's not really relevant and i think the younger you go the more that you know they been indoctrinated they see it that way so um you know marriage only makes sense in terms of genesis and i think when it comes to genesis a lot of church fathers have been the majority have been pretty explicit that they have a uh historical view of genesis that it was a six-day creation you know basil has the hexameron nine sermons on the historicity of genesis uh, there's really only a couple church fathers that even kind of somewhat uh diverge from the six-day narrative maybe greg of nissa i don't count origin because he was a heretic but um you know augustine has the view that it's an instantaneous creation not a six-day creation but that doesn't support theistic evolution so most people who want to try to argue a theistic evolution or an evolutionary worldview in orthodoxy or combating you know again almost all the church fathers mm -hmm. except for and again augustine's not he's not there's no it doesn't afford any evidence for the evolutionary view because he just has this weird instantaneous view because of his problem with god acting in time and space so because he has a absolute divine simplicity view he, he struggles with this in the confessions he says i don't see how god could create 
in time and space if he's an absolutely simple eternal being. So mm -hmm. um, thus, what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman, in our view, is kind of tied to the Genesis narrative. And there's a, you know, there's a hierarchy, a, a structure set up there uh, in Genesis. And to diverge from that hierarchy is already also in Genesis. That divergence is the very sort of rebellion that Satan introduces uh, through the idea that man can displace God woman can displace man, right? There's this sort of upwards revolutionary movement in man's fall. Well, Satan wants to displace God. Man thinks he can be like Satan and be like God. And then woman thinks she can be like man and, you know, rebel as well. So, mm -hmm. and then the curse, you know, is that you will desire, your desires will be to rule over your husband and he shall rule over you. So <clears throat> the exposition that most of the church fathers have, you know, if you read something like Genesis creation, early man by father Seraphim Rose, pretty much just reflects what i what i conveyed so <clears throat> i would say um there's a good book called uh, uh first created man by saint simeon the new theologian and that's kind of a medieval byzantine defense you could say it's not directly defending six-day creation because it wasn't really doubted yet on a large scale but it is relevant to that and so i know that today's talk's not about six-day creation but all of this relates because you know, evolutionary theory is really what was crucial in getting rid of the belief in Genesis mm -hmm. and getting rid of Genesis doesn't just get rid of, you know, the idea of special creation. Again, it it's going to eventually affect the ideas of marriage, because if the Genesis narrative isn't the case, then there's no such thing as marriage. It's just a it's just a social contract. It's a thing that human society developed out of nowhere for practical or survival reasons or whatever mm -hmm. so it doesn't make any sense without that sacramental uh, perspective so but i don't know of any specific church fathers that just kind of treat manhood per se other than outside of kind of christology and anthropology uh in the councils what we get with you know the, who the person of christ is but i would say that divine revelation already kind of has some pretty clear standards of manhood with you know old testament figures like david samson uh abraham you know these are all masculine figures who went to battle uh who's had their faith tested uh who were tempted in various ways be it with you know women be it with wealth be it solomon <laughs> right i mean we have all of that in scripture as kind of uh, other paragons of what masculinity should be yeah so I want to go back to what the thing you started with by saying it's like it all depends on if you see the Genesis account as being true. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm I converted to Orthodoxy some five years ago, and very much uh, I think a big influence on me over the last years has been Jonathan Peugeot, Lord of Spirits, these kind of online sources where it's very much about like patterns of of being, and mm -hmm. there can be a tendency to have a large focus on the Genesis account as kind of like, you know, these very compressed stories that have been taken from like, you know, maybe even millennia or, you know, Jordan Peterson kind of understanding. Um, mm. And then it's been compressed down into these simple oral tradition stories. And and that's something that's quite easy to to buy into and, and to understand, get a lot of value from. And then I actually read Sarah from Rose uh, and his arguments for that pretty much every single one of the church fathers uh, saw this as a historical account. So... Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I think it was in, I can't remember. I think it was in another book that I, that I read it where he, he came with the same arguments as well. Anyway, but, but would well, you, is, you would then also the go and say really, that. Yeah. This is, this one's really important because it's basically everything that he wrote on 
Genesis. So it's not just like exegesis of the church fathers. He also has like philosophical arguments against evolution. So I'm not, I'm not discounting the other work that you're talking about, but that book is really good because it's specifically about like the totality of this subject, but go ahead. Yeah. So, so you, but you would say when it comes to saying, is the Genesis account true, you mean in a historical a historical sense and i mean the six day creation would you also say then like that the timeline of you know some six seven thousand years ago is is, is also necessary understanding uh of of how that how our so history, the history of the orthodox church in? right so the history of the orthodox church has the byzantine calendar and the byzantine calendar is based on the genesis account and so i forget the exact number i'm not being like a hard ass about what the you know specific number is that you have to believe in and I don't know that the church fathers ever say that, oh, you have to believe in this specific age per se, but the New Testament, for example, is rife with ex of cases where Jesus, Paul clearly state that, you know, Adam and Eve were historical beings mm -hmm. and they were historical in the sense of the same way that Jesus is, is historical. And so, for example, we have throughout the book of Genesis, countless prophecies of the mess of the Messiah and what lineage he will come from. That lineage is recounted in the genealogies in right in the New Testament, the Gospels, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's very important that we have a genealogy that's consistent to show that Jesus fulfills this prophecy of being the descendant of Abraham, because if he's not the descendant of Abraham, then he doesn't fulfill those prophecies. And there's many, many of them throughout the book of Genesis, right? The other thing, too, is that the book of Genesis is really important for teaching the doctrine of the Trinity. Because the doctrine of Trinity is not something developed in the New Testament period. It's not a development. It's a Trinitarian, it's a it's a Hebrew doctrine that we have to stress. And that's contrary to a lot of modern religious notions of uh, evolving tradition, evolving comparative religion theories that the ancient world was uh, pagan and then it evolves to monotheism and then it evolves to atheism, right? That's kind of a traditional secular narrative. So we, I, what I'm saying is that we can't go to a bunch of secular people who don't believe the New Testament or the Old Testament to tell us the true meaning of the book of Genesis. We got to go to mm -hmm. the enlightened people within our tradition who experience and have seen the divine light. And that's our church fathers. That's our tradition. So while there might be, there might be insights in Carl Jung or Plato or Jordan Peterson, they're not going to be the ones that can tell us these key doctrinal issues about whether Jesus is the second Adam to be the second Adam, according to St. Paul has to mean that he's the same bodily structure and nature that Adam had. Mm -hmm. Otherwise he doesn't redeem and resurrect these bodies. And that's crucial to the new Testament's, you know, theology of the body, so to speak. So recapitulation is a doctrine that's very fundamental to orthodoxy, which is that Christ recapitulates and restores all of human nature in the, in the general resurrection mm -hmm. and also that he will restore the entire universe so if that's if if you read romans 8 paul's very clear that the entire creation was subjected to death as a result of adam's sin mm -hmm. so so death cannot be a, a natural phenomenon and pretty much every theistic evolutionist has to state in some way that death is a natural phenomenon they'll say well physical death is natural spiritual death is unnatural the genesis account makes it very clear that when adam sinned he introduced death in every sense into the the entropy into the physical universe our bodies and spiritual death mm -hmm. and so in the same way christ taking on our actual human nature to restore it 
restores us and heals us both spiritually and physically in the universe as well. This is just the, the common Orthodox patristic teaching on recapitulation. And this is very clear from at least St. Athanasius all the way up until John Damascus and even later Byzantine theologians. So, um, so, so these are some of the theological reasons why uh, it doesn't work to say, well, maybe Genesis is just purely allegorical or it's just sort of these archetypal meanings. But I have to be clear here that as Seraphim Rose says, quoting St. Cyril of Alexandria, we don't um, only say that something is purely literal, right? By the time of St. Maximus, the fourfold sense of scripture is pretty normative, right? So this is the historical literal, the anagogical, the allegorical, the tropological, right? So you have these four senses of scripture. And sometimes it's just boiled down to two senses, the literal and the spiritual. Mm -hmm. And even in the even in the case of Genesis one, most of the church fathers give it a literal and a spiritual meaning. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people in church history have faltered on both sides of this equation and gone into extremes either way. For example, in the early church, there was the Antiochian school of interpretation, and they always stressed the grammatical literal mm -hmm. to the point that they actually ended up kind of being Nestorian mm -hmm. in their Christology. Likewise, the opposite extreme, uh, the Alexandrians, particularly after Origen, were almost wholly committed to the allegor allegorical meaning, and they would sacrifice the literal meaning. Well, St. Cyril, who is himself of the Alexandrian tradition, one of our great theologians, makes it very clear that the spiritual is built on the, on the, on the literal, right? And so they both go together. Mm -hmm. And so there's, it's not an either or. Mm -hmm. And so it's not a question of fundamentalism versus uh spiritual allegorical exegesis that's not that's that's false that's a question of textual criticism issues right we're talking about hermeneutics so hermeneutics is the science of interpretation that means literal meaning spiritual meaning those are questions of how we interpret the text mm -hmm. saying that the texts are not historical or that they're full of myths and errors or that they're that's all liberal higher critical textual issues so people confuse these things because the term fundamentalism arose in the 20th century in regard to Protestant theologians who were denying the fundamentals of the faith, namely the Trinity, the resurrection, the virgin birth, and so forth. So Protestants came up with this idea of the five fundamentals, mm -hmm. and that was a way to guard against in their communions the liberalization of denying things like the virgin birth or the Trinity. Mm -hmm. So ironically, anybody who says, well, I'm not a fundamentalist, well, you're already denying like that means that means that you're not believing in the in the five fundamentals according to the historical meaning of that term. But I do understand what they're expressing, and they're trying to express the idea that we don't agree with fundamentalist evangelical hermeneutics of the text, which only stick to the literal and don't give the spiritual meaning. So that mm -hmm. hopefully that clarifies. Absolutely. So I'd like to go to I, you. You touched a little bit on it, but one of the most the key things that for me has also spoken incredibly much about understanding man, and that's what I found. Like the Orthodox Church has a lot of focus on this sentence that God created man, or God created man in the image and likeness of God. And um, I think that in my you know growing up in a Protestant family, then uh, there's a lot of less kind of like idea of the sinfulness of man and the, the fall and you know even total depravity in some in some yeah, cases yeah. um where whereas in that in that understanding then you spoke a little about death and and it was really a massive insight to me to 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 have it presented to me that death was a gift to human beings like it was the able to redeem us from the sinful nature and so actually man wasn't born to die 
but this was something that the church fathers um can, can you may, may, yeah maybe you can formulate that a little yeah, bit one, one of the big differences that orthodoxy has against most western uh, expressions of christianity is the idea that death is unnatural and this is pretty you know universal in orthodox theology as far as i can tell because death is tied to the angel of death the entity the being that brought death the devil so when man covenanted you could say in genesis with the devil he made a deal with death and later on scripture actually says that man made a covenant with death right echoing this idea of breaking the covenant with god in genesis and then making a covenant with death aka the angel of death satan lucifer the serpent and so man is now sort of under his dominion of Satan. That doesn't mean that he completely lost the image of God. And that's sort of the Lutheran Calvin, Luther himself, and then Calvin kind of go in that direction, so to speak. I mean, Calvin still kind of thinks there's some, some uh, maintaining of the notion of qualities. God, yeah. Day, but it's really discarded and, and, and messed up to the point, like you said, of total depravity where man can't do anything good or, or in any way incline himself towards god or towards the good so um the difference though is that orthodox theology makes a distinction typically in the eastern fathers between uh the image and the likeness we retain the image after the fall but we've lost the likeness of god which we talk about as uh theosis or deification the life of the holy spirit i think it's saint seraphim of who said that the whole purpose of the, the orthodox life is to regain the holy spirit to regain the likeness so that for us is the um, uncreated life that we're seeking uh, beyond just a mortal created life. And that's what we think Jesus is talking about in John 17 when he says he came to give us the glory that he had with the Father before the foundation of the world. That glory can't be a creature, right? God's eternal glory isn't created. It's uncreated. So we have to be then a sharing in uncreated grace. And really only orthodoxy, in my view, has consistently maintained that what we're partaking of uh, is uncreated grace. Roman Catholic Church has dogmatized the idea of created grace, uh, particularly post-Trent. Um, Protestants, I think it's not really that clear because they don't really go into a lot of the specifics of this. But I think mm -hmm. if you were to look at something like Calvinism, for example, the idea that uh, what you're imputed with in imputation is the merits of Christ. The merits of Christ were uh, merited within time and space. That's what he did as a man to perfectly fulfill the covenant of works in Calvinist theology. And so it still amounts to a form of created grace because uh, it's something that comes about through Christ meriting in time and space. Those are created actions or works according to Calvinism. Therefore, because it was what Adam was expected to do. Adam's a creature. Adam failed the covenant works. Jesus fulfills it in Calvinist theology. So that's what's imputed to you. Um, that doesn't really exist in Orthodox theology because Christ is a divine hypostasis, a divine person who from the very moment of his incarnation deified the human nature that he assumed. So we are deified by partaking of that human nature that he assumed and deified through his redemptive actions. So that's very Would, would you agree? Uh, I, I just finished reading the triads by St. Gregory Palmas. And so that's this conversation that he had in, I think, Correct. 14th, 15th century with this guy called Barlam of Cambria, uh, which where, where I, I thought it was amazingly well laid out. Uh, oh, yeah. that, and oh. it was this idea of the uncreated light that it was being challenged, where Barlam felt that it was like knowledge right. that was the source of enlightenment and and where it's more like this first-hand personal experience of the uncreated that yeah. we can have as human beings because right. we are in this image of god and remain and remain in that absolutely yeah uh yeah triads is uh is good he has the same kind of debate with uh akandinos in the dialogue with the barley mm -hmm. so it's basically the same kind of discussion and debate 
Yeah. And uh, I mean, I think that's just faithful to, you know, what you see in scriptures with the theophanies being in time and space. Um, the Roman Catholic positions always try to struggle with this, trying to figure out if the theophanies are created things. Are they holograms? Are they angels? Mm-hmm. And the Orthodox position is like, no, that's the uncreated logos in time and space. The Roman Catholics are always like, well, but, uh, you know, you can't have the uncreated in time and space because it's absolutely simple. It can't undergo change. It can't move. It's not spatial. Mm-hmm. Well, that would undercut the incarnation. <laughs> I mean, yeah. no, you understand <laughs> that if that's the case, then you can't have an incarnation. Because yeah. the incarnation is a second hypostasis in time and space, walking around doing things, being in one location in a special way. Mm-hmm. Think also of the kenosis text, right? And in Philippians, where it says he humbled himself to step into our nature, mm-hmm. which means that he willed to not exercise all of his powers. Mm-hmm. So therefore, you have to have some notion of a distinction between um, essence and energy for even the canonic theology to be true, according to Philippians. So yes, I think uh, you're absolutely you're absolutely right. They're very perceptive, but also again, in our view, you know, the devil uh, is is the angel of death. Thus, death is going kind to of intimately bound up with him, and death is unnatural. It's not a natural phenomenon, and that's why Paul in Romans eight describes the reversal of death, even in the natural order, as repairing what Adam did. Mm-hmm. So, in, in other words, Adam, animals dying. That's a result of Adam's fall. That will also be repaired in the eschaton, in the recapitulation. <clears throat> Can we talk a little bit about marriage as well? Because you also, in the beginning, mentioned that like the relationship between men and women was actually set in that Genesis account. So can, can you tell us what is the structure? What is the pattern of marriage? What are the key elements that we should be looking at for understanding that relationship properly? If Genesis is, is true. Yeah, one and there's another element I think that um, orthodoxy has that's different from Roman Catholicism, which is the idea that even in the garden, <clears throat> everything was Christological. Mm-hmm. So Adam is made in the image, not of some generic uh, natural theology, generic oneness, unity essence. He's made in the image of the Trinity, made in the image of Christ. So to say that Adam has made the image of Christ right away is very revolutionary theologically, because that means that uh, Christ was in the garden. That means that, again, the Trinity was taught in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. So if Christ is made, excuse me, Adam is made in the image of Christ, then Adam is immediately an image, a Christological image or type. And that means that um, Eve is already a ecclesiological type. And everybody in Orthodox already knows this with, you know, patristic exegesis, with the liturgy, with the hymns. Mm-hmm. Obviously, Eve is, right, Mary's the new Eve, <clears throat> because Eve was a prototype of uh, not just Israel, but also the church. And so the relationship there is already ecclesiological. It's already Christological. So it, it will never ultimately be divorced from or understood uh, without being connected to the anthropology of the garden. Uh, and so that's why Paul says, like in Ephesians and in Colossians, that the whole universe exists for the church. Mm-hmm. And that's a really odd passage because people don't really think about, Paul says, all of the all, the things that exist, all the created order of the universe exists for the church. And <clears throat> if you understand this cosmic scope that the Eastern Fathers, that Maximus and people like that, St. Maximus, that they stress, that begins to make sense. So the what i'm saying is that the fundamental nature of not just 
physical reality, but man and woman is also Christological and ecclesiological. So we can't properly interpret the world without divine revelation and without a sacramental view of reality. And that includes uh, understanding man's relationship to another being like a woman in a Christological, ecclesiological way, um, as well as all of reality being understood in this kind of male-female dynamic, which was set up by God intentionally as a good thing. So those boundaries that are set up between man and woman, <clears throat> this is very important because even some of the Eastern fathers uh, got this wrong. Some of the Eastern fathers went so far into kind of speculating that uh, for example, Nyssa, we, we all know Nyssa believed in a form of apocatastasis, which is a kind of a universal salvation he speculated on. But he also thought that um, gender was a result of the fall. Mm-hmm. But very clearly in, in Genesis, and I think Father Seven Rose takes, takes issue with this and has a page or two on it in his big book. Mm-hmm. No, actually, Adam and Eve are already male and female before the fall. Mm-hmm. So we don't have to have to do clever exegesis to try to explain how... Because they had this assumption that it was still influenced by Neoplatonism, that unity is better than multiplicity. Mm-hmm. And so if Adam and Eve are created distinct and multiple in a, in a real distinct way, then that would imply some kind of lesser status. Mm-hmm. And so they try to sort of creatively wrestle with this to say, well, maybe the distinctions of biological and gender, uh, you know, differentiation are somehow a result of the fall. Mm-hmm. But I think that's a dangerous direction to go in. I think that's incorrect. I think that um, other church fathers and what Father Stephen Rose argues is correct, that no, God, there's nothing inherently bad, wrong, or in an ontologically diminished status between having distinctions, between having two different things. Mm-hmm. So it's just an, a metaphysical assumption that unity is better than multiplicity. So are, uh, are you familiar? Sorry. Are you familiar with, um, I think his name is Paul Evdokian or Evdokiev? Uh, he has a book uh, yeah, the Sacrament of Love. I haven't read that, but I've read a little bit of that. Okay. Of stuff. I'm busy reading it now. I'm struggling with it, actually. It's it's pretty dense um, and and also some challenging ideas. Um, so he, he goes a lot into this and he also talks about like, you know, the, the, the marriage relationship, the nuptial relationship as the small church and, and how that oh, okay. is imaged yeah. on God as well. Yeah, exactly. Um, um, one, yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut the, you off. I feel like I'm, I'm rambling that, a whole lot, but go ahead. He kind of talks a lot. I found him to be far more, for example, I actually love the word patriarchy. And I think like I, we kind of need, I'd love to reown that word and and, yeah. and, and to, for us to yeah. appreciate all, all the depth and, and the meaningfulness in, in, in what patriarchy is. But he has a bit more of a, a critical approach in that he, and I think rightly points out that as a side, we prioritize masculine values far too highly and don't appreciate the, the, the feminine approach to things. He speaks about kind of like how the masculine penetrates the world and through violence and through like the power of logic and rationality kind of like establishes things while, you know, he, he uses the image of Mary just in her being and in an acceptance, you know, like uh, things are born, Christ is born within her. Right. And so, yeah. yeah I would um, disagree with all that. I mean, I don't know enough about his theology really to come at it with a critical perspective, but from what I'm hearing, I would disagree with that because mm-hmm. I don't think we're in the age where, uh, the problem is too much masculinity. I think we've gone to mm-hmm. way to the other extreme, if anything, right? So the problem now is this push, which I think is intentional. It's a geopolitical push. It's a deep state, state department, foundation push to push feminism everywhere. 
Uh, there's a lot of money behind it that's been behind it for 100 years. And that includes into the theological realm. And so I always hear the same kind of argumentation that, oh, well, we've neglected, you know, female mysticism. Well, we, may, we need to look no further than the Roman Catholic Church, which about four or 500 years ago, very heavily adopted a female centric mysticism uh, to the extent to, to the sacrificing of a lot of the rational. And I, I don't have a problem saying that um, scholasticism was too rational and, and overly intellectual. I agree with that. That does not mean that the answer to that is to rush into some feminine idea of um, <coughs> histrionics or, you know, that's what you see the Roman Catholic mystic women doing that kind of in the 13, 14, 1500s sort of revolutionize and, and combat, you could say, spiritually speaking, the, the devotional uh, aridity that was lacking in the Latin church. Mm -hmm. I mean, even France of Assisi is a form of a reaction against this stuff. Yeah. But I, mean, I, 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 just, no, quite... I don't think the answer is more femininity. I mean, femininity has its place, but it is not, mm -hmm. it is not something that we, it's the same kind of argument that, um, that uh what's that weirdo guys uh the the sophiologist guy right like he makes the same argument that mary is the is the uh hypostasis of the holy spirit mm -hmm. that's all ridiculous yeah. it's all just a way to steer the church into ecumenism and downplay masculinity so no i totally disagree with that Okay. I mean, I would say modern feminism is more just like a, a hate of femininity uh, more yeah. than it's a, a pushing of femininity. Um, and I can definitely see in trying to promote these things in a kind of like political sphere or, you know, openly, explicitly, I think one automatically will go wrong. I think for myself, I can, I can see how I... I'm a very cognitive person. Uh, and so I try and really with my mind grasp ideas and there can be a lack of a kind of patience in, you know, maybe just spending time in my icon corner, not just reciting prayer after prayer after prayer, but but trying to just be and listen uh, a little bit more, um, receipt being more receptive, something like that. Um, and, and, and yeah, the, just the fact that, you know, we see how, the fetishization of the masculine uh, or, you know, power, uh, influence, uh, money uh, is, is seen as the only goods. I have had several conversations with feminists and yeah, it's like, it's like so hard to them to understand. Like they talk about basically what they're just saying is they want like, you know, heroes with tits or like, you know, women that could beat up 10 guys and be in the boardrooms. But, you know, the, the role of the mother, for example, is, is absolutely, you know, my, my wife, she, she doesn't work. She stays at home and we living in Denmark and she's had to create, face quite some criticism uh and like you know a lot of skepticism as well for for wanting to do that um yeah and yeah i think you're right to say that as individuals we might each individually need some kind of medicinal remedy like that if we're too extreme in one direction but i don't think as a society as a whole or uh you know that we have this uh you know dangerous toxic masculinity problem that's going on i think we've gone in the other direction is what i'm saying i mean i mean they're already pushing for uh you know deaconesses women priests in all the different denominations yeah. and that's to me one easy signifier that we've gone in the opposite direction yeah let me try put this is my pet theory uh, about what's happened i i've never really uh i haven't read it anywhere else but this in my kind of spiritual journey, uh, coming from atheism, going through uh, 
coming back to Christianity and then eventually finding the Orthodox Church. What, what The way I see it is that like the core problem that I've been facing and that I saw, noticed in myself is this disconnection between the head and the body somehow. It's like I live sometimes up in a world of fantasies, but then my actions don't correspond to that. Uh, mm. And there's this disconnect somehow. And it's very uncomfortable to bring them together. And I kind of see it as like the first place where this really became very clear was that we had a conciliar church that had mm. like we're a body and christ was the head of the church and then there was one of the patriarchs the pope of rome who said no i'm going to be the head and so he lifted himself up above and so there came this excessive focus on the head which is kind of like an excessive focus in some ways of the masculine if i'm below the head that i'm in the feminine receptive role toward in, at least in some sense, right? Mm -hmm. And so, yeah. and so we kind of get focused on on that. And then, of course, what happens when we when we concentrate too much power and attention on the head is, is that it can, yeah, it gets inflated, <laughs> uh, and then it can get corrupted, and then there's a rebellion that happens, and then things split split off, and then the disconnect gets gets larger and larger. And so, and so for me, that's the fundamental problem that we're facing in the West. And well, I have a really good Ukrainian friend who they haven't been through, you know, the enlightenment period and scholasticism and all this kind of stuff. Um, and I just noticed there's like a groundedness, a groundedness and a, and a closeness to like daily practicalities. He's not too concerned about like all the things that we get all anxious and, and, you know, hyped up about. Uh, sometimes, you know, there's mm -hmm. a lot of anxiety. I notice when I speak to, you know, just people here in Denmark, uh, which doesn't seem to be so much uh, in in these other cultures a lot of the time. Yeah, I think, um, you know, what I see on the ground in, in the U.S. is a lot of, uh, I mean, there's the difference in what men were like 20 years ago, like when I was graduating high school, as to what what I see the men coming out of high school now. It's like the guys are noticeably in their bodily build and frame, mm -hmm. way skinnier, smaller, um diminutive noodle arms i'm not like a i'm serious it's not funny like she's in there laughing i'm like that's just that's what guys look like um and there are some exceptions to that there's yeah. there's some guys that play football and whatnot but i mean i just think there's been a complete loss of masculinity i was talking to a high school teacher yesterday for example he we went to dinner with a guy who still teaches high school he's taught uh high school in a kind of a rough area for 17 years mm -hmm. and he was explaining that it's it's not the same like the, the guys don't go ask out girls it's not like that anymore um in high school um they don't really go and have parties and do the things that typical teenagers would do all they do is doom scroll tiktok so i think we're overlooking the internet's role here and i, I don't disagree with your assessment of looking back to you know sort of the papacy stepping up to you know the head or whatever I think that was tied to theological errors at the same time. Those are all connected, like the Gregorian revolution, the papacy kind of coming. It ties to together well with the filioque understanding as well, I think, that, yeah, that like that right. kind of messes up this understanding between head and body or something. Now, like rather that. than accepting what is the mystery of the Trinity, which has already been laid down, we're now saying, no, we're going to squish the Trinity into um, a logical, syllogistic, you know, uh, Thomas Aquinas's summa, and if that doesn't work, then, you know, we'll set the theologians to, you know, make it right. And they can come up with all the neologisms to make the system work. But um, that's an abstracting. So what I'm saying is that I see the same abstracting going on with now that we all live out our lives on the Internet. It's not really anybody's fault because it's just the way society progressed, uh, you know, the decisions of different oligarchs and tech elites in the Pentagon. 
So now we all have our lives lived out in a more abstracted way. And what I mean by more abstracted is that most of the stuff that we're talking about now, like we would have had to go meet each other in person 20 years ago. We would have had to, you know, yeah. set up a, a, a camera and do, a, do an interview with microphones and blah, 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 fly to Denmark. You know, I'd have to go meet these people to do these shows. Yeah. Now everything is distanced from that physical movement and interaction. And it's all kind of abstracted into this, the cloud and the, the web and the, you know, internet. So it's a movement towards abstraction, which in itself doesn't have to be bad, but I think you're right that what it does is that it trains us to think that everything is truly abstracted and up here and the body is worthless, pointless, doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. I actually think this is a big part of why people think that they can become another gender is that they have lived in an abstract fantasy internet world, yeah. fantasy games, video games, living out your life on social media, and you can put your avatar as whatever you want, right? I can uh, say that I'm furry 69 and I'm a blue furry creature, right? Um, and I've been that on Twitch for 10 years, right? Mm -hmm. And I start to believe I am that. That's the real me. And it's not this gross uh, Gnostic bodily existence that I'm in. I can identify as that because that's where I spend most of my time and my focus and energy. Anyway, I'm, I'm rambling, but I'm just saying, I agree with your point about the papacy. And I'm saying, I'm, I'm like the papacy, like the internet is like the new intellectual papacy is what I'm trying to say, where we live out our abstracted existence away from our body. And the more I've seen things change from, you know, I graduated high school before the internet was everywhere. So I knew what it was like before the internet. And now what I see is that people are more and more divorced from just basic humanity. I mean, my, I mean, that's, in other words, to understand what it is to be a human, to have basic humanity, I don't think you can even understand it apart from what we have in orthodoxy. So you're going to just basically go into madness, right? Like what's St. Anthony say in that quote? Like, eventually people will say, you know, why are you not mad like we are? You yeah. know what I mean? Like, yeah. that's where we're going because um, we're fundamentally denying things like the body. And that might sound odd because you think, well, but they're telling you to follow your passions. They did for a long time, but now I think they're telling us to follow a new type of passion, which is like a weird, um, like believe that you are whatever you mentally think you are. So mm -hmm. that's actually a denial of the body, like all the trans stuff. And even what you said about feminism, you're right. Feminism is, uh, actually an attack on women mm -hmm. and all the trans stuff. That's actually an attack on humanity and the body yeah yeah and feminism is actually morphing into that we have a really large and powerful feminist organization here in denmark and they are increasingly you know pushing the whole trans movement oh, wow. as well yeah. uh so that's uh, absolutely um yeah really interesting so one thing that i was thinking when i was preparing this interview was <laughs> i just have a very kind of superficial lay understanding of philosophy and dipped in my toes a little bit i've studied political science um, and I couldn't think of anybody who said anything worthwhile on this issue of male and female uh, in the world of philosophy, you know, in like Taoism, mm -hmm. you have some, the, you know, the yin yang symbol and this kind of stuff. Right. And this is also caught into, cause in my work, I work with men. Mm -hmm. And so we try and create, we have something called, we call the 10 principles and we believe there should be masculine principles. Yeah. But what I notice is that, that we fall into this kind of dualism a lot of the time and reality just doesn't seem to fit into dualism properly as well. So can, 
I don't know, can you help me out there? Is how, how can I think about uh, male and female in a kind of, in, in the sense of like, you know, Western philosophy and, mm. you know, which I'm obviously trained in and, and brought up inside. That's a really good question. I mean, I can only think of like, you know, Schopenhauer is known for pretty severe critiques of women. Mm -hmm. um, I don't, I mean, I, I wouldn't go to as far as Schopenhauer does, but I think his critiques are correct. Mm -hmm. And I think he was probably reacting to uh, versioning feminism in his day. Mm -hmm. So, you know, even though he, we might think he's extreme, there's probably some good insights in Schopenhauer that uh, people might be too timid to, i'm not talking about you i'm just talking about people in general too timid to, to look at but um, i mean if you go back to saint jerome i mean jerome has some really severe critiques of women it's i mean he's kind of being tongue-in-cheek and comical like you'll if you go to feminist websites or whatever like they'll the first person they'll go to is jerome right they'll be like oh the evils of misogyny of saint jerome and he's just i think kind of a funny person i've read enough of jerome to saint jerome to think that not everything he's saying is completely literal like when he says that, you know, I think he has some quote that's like, you know, I'm not even sure if women have souls. I don't think he literally thinks that. I think he's just kind of like joking. He says something like that. I don't remember the exact quote, but I mean, we don't believe that theologically, obviously. But um, he, he's saying that, look, women are not made for the same things as men. Men are made, as you said earlier, to do the go forth, conquer, right? I mean, men are focused towards the world and women's focus should be towards the man, right? That's the, and what we're told now in the last, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60 years post 60s uh, countercultural revolution is that men need more be more like women. By the way, I've read a bunch of those 60s countercultural dudes. They all say this. Like, for example, um, Terrence McKenna says that it's high time for men to understand and adopt feminine uh, attributes, namely uh, shutting up, don't mansplain, um, be receptive, uh, be emotional, listen to women's needs and emotions, all that. And it's it's all said from his vantage point, obviously, to bring in the technocratic order because he's a he's an open servant of that. He actually he says the future of religion will be some kind of goddess worship, right? And so, <clears throat> likewise, other people beyond just idiot psychonauts like Terence McKenna, I mean, you actually have high level geopolitical people also saying that we need to push feminism to change society. Anyway. And one of those things is to say that the man, the man then focuses the, his gaze on the woman, his attention on the, on the woman. And then the woman takes on the role of conquering the world, going into the workplace, getting a, a law degree, spending 30 years in a corporation. So mm -hmm. it's been reversed on purpose. That's a, that form of inversion. Mm -hmm. And thank you. See, my wife brings me a coffee. That's the right order of things, right? And she's smiling at it. She enjoyed it. <laughs> she's over there laughing and smiling. So, see, it makes women happy. It admires you because she she's a part of what you're doing, and she and she enjoys being able to contribute to, yes. to what you're doing. Um, and, and we, I mean, we do uh, this as a team, right? So, like, I'm the leader, uh, and she's uh, a team member. <laughs> to use the various corporate analogies, let's use team building analogies, like the corporate people do in their corporate strategies um yeah. anyway I'm, I'm rambling but uh yeah I, I think but jay what 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 you said on the philosophy thing that that i, I i'm not sure i completely got that because it sounded quite disrespectful of women and their role and their importance and what they have to contribute well you i thought you were asking like what are some philosophers that have spoken to this yeah. issue and i can't yeah, even and you mentioned like just a lot of people who are very disrespectful or critical Critical of women. I'm just right? trying to think of the ones that address femininity specifically. And I can only think of like off the top of my head, 
Yeah. Schopenhauer and Jerome. Okay. Um, so I don't know what I'm saying is I don't know that we can look to philosophers yeah. for much help on, I know Jerome's not strictly a philosopher for much help on this issue. Yeah. But I don't think ultimately this is that deep or difficult of an issue. It's like pretty basic in that, I mean, I think Jerome's right. Not that women don't have souls, but that, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, it's not the role of women to teach. It's not the role of women to lead in society. You mm-hmm. can still be a Proverbs 31 woman and have a, a job and make money and do these kinds of things. Be active. You can be physical. Women can learn to shoot, can learn to hunt, all that stuff. Nothing wrong with any of that. Mm-hmm. So it's not the activities that are necessarily the problem. It's the um, idea that you have to reverse the roles or yeah. that there's some sort of um necessity to that a man has to be more feminine in his attributes and qualities i just don't believe that i don't yeah. think that no i mean I, I i fully agree with you that that there is a very very widespread idea that to be okay men need to become more like women right uh, and and this is a a terrible thing for men to listen to there's a lot of men who buy, buy into it they also believe that they have to tell everybody all of their feelings all the time and right. especially the things that they're scared about or feel vulnerable about or right. where they're weak or have anxiety and it's like I, I think it's good to have like a best friend and i have a guy that i call every single day at three o'clock in the afternoon and if i have something that's bothering me i'll tell it to him but i don't go showing this stuff on facebook right it's like this idea yeah, that you need yeah. to be vulnerable all the time and be oversharing like it it's very very unattractive so we right. have all these young men today who are doing this constantly and um have a very it's very it's very sad to see and i i often have guys who've been doing this they come into me after they've been doing it for you know five ten twenty thirty years trying to be the nice guy in the relationships and they've seen how all you know the hard ass you know alpha male types are getting all the women and and they've just like they they get friend zoned all the time and so they're like eventually like what's happening here and i need to do something about this and then it's hard for them to find the right balance again because often there's some anger there as well and stuff like that so it's it's really difficult when you say philosophers dealing with this issue, like my mind goes to the the famous secular philosophers. Yeah. And I think in the secular world, you're always only going to kind of get these extremes, right? Uh, of, you know, somebody like Schopenhauer, who basically doesn't see much worth in women at all, or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, some kind of radical feminist. Like that's, that's your only two options you're going to get. So, um so what I, is again, it that, just, about this difference between male and female that puts it in the realm more of theology than mm-hmm, why right. can't we so understand in other words, it in a logical, find, philosophical way? Right. You're, you're going to have to look to uh, the realm yeah. of theology is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. 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 I mean, even was it was it Aristotle who also said like a woman's basically a misformed man, right? That yeah. was his conclusion. <laughs> right, exactly. um, yeah. I mean, uh, I think uh, we're overlooking things that are uh, pretty well known like proverbs i mean proverbs was uh kind of like a, a young jewish man's catechesis so you know what was catechesis like in you know <laughs> the days of david and solomon well you'd read you'd read solomon's proverbs so i mean what does proverbs say i mean it's i think it has a balanced view of course every feminist mis- would say oh it's misogynist it's evil i mean proverbs is very balanced and and accurate in the dangers of what you're going to encounter in the world of women uh but also the positivity the the good things that you're going to encounter a la proverbs 31 when you find a good wife if god blesses you with a good wife right mm-hmm. so and i'm not saying we don't listen to jesus we listen to proverbs i'm just saying that you know jesus's advice is that it's better if you can be single and you have that that gift mm-hmm. if you can't well guess what 
you're not, I see a lot of guys doing this, especially young guys in the religious world or guys that are new to, to Orthodox or whatever. Like they think that, well, I, I'm going to be married, but I'm going to act like and pretend like I'm a monastic. And I'll even take on a monastic name in my Twitter account and tell everybody what to do in marriage, even though I'm 19 or 20 and I've never been married. I've never had a date. And I think that's just really uh, inappropriate and it's just a mess. And I see that all over Twitter. Uh, but what those guys should be doing is if you're not going to be celibate and in the, in the monastic life, you're going to have to deal with the ways of this world. So you're going to have to learn to uh, start a business, to be, <laughs> to be a man, to control your emotions. You're going to have to learn how to deal with women, how to go on a date. Uh, it, it, all those things are going to have to be learned. And a lot of guys are just lazy and they'd rather check out. So that's where we have the, you know, the epidemic of incel. Um, and really, again, orthodoxy, as uh, Father Deacon Ananias was pointing out, like you got two options, right? You've got the call to monastic life or you've got marriage. Mm -hmm. There's not the third option of uh, incel. Mm -hmm. So, so you have to like get to work. That's the point. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's so great to have that so clear. And for me as a married man, I, it, it's a very, very powerful thing to realize that it's my marriage. That is the vehicle for me to work on my salvation. You know, it's like, if yeah. I feel like I'm struggling spiritually, if I feel my life is difficult, what do I do? I focus more on my relationship with my wife. Uh, and, and I try to grow in intimacy with her. And what I find is like, that's incredibly difficult because we see the world differently and there's all kinds right. of things that we don't understand in each other. And when I try and then direct my attention towards that and really do it well, it's like, I realize like this is probably the most difficult thing that I could ever do. And there's, it is there's an infinite depth there as well. Like we'll never truly know each other except yeah. in God. Right. And so, yeah, so well put, yeah. yeah, my, this, this Ukrainian friend of mine, his, his father was not a very strong churchgoer at all. Um, but his mother, his mother was, and then the father fell sick with cancer and the, the everybody, and there was also money and everything like that to put the father in a home and let, or in the hospital and kind of let him leave out there. But actually the mother then insisted in being the only person to care for him. I hope you're enjoying the conversation. A little reminder, if you want to be around other masculine guys that are setting goals, creating a personal vision and working to integrate it into your life, then check out Manifesto Core. You can find the link in the description to this video. Thanks. And she did this for three or four years, three and a half years, I think it was. She was with him every single day and basically just was there bringing her attention and helping him to come to know God. Because she realized, like, if this guy dies, he's half of me. I'm together with him for eternity. Mm -hmm. And so, and, and, and what happened is that they were, you know, in these last final years of his life, well, there was incredible suffering and pain and, you know, him losing his bodily functions. Uh, and, and they were being drawn together in the faith. You know, that's the really hard work. But when you understand and you believe in the eternity of the soul, in the Genesis account, in that, you know, man and woman are created to be in this relationship, mirroring Christ and the church, then um, it's a very powerful mechanism, right? Yeah, the suffering has meaning, right? And like, I think if you're in the secular realm or whatever, the suffering is really a thing to run away from and like, okay, well, you know what? This is, this is not fun, I'm out of here, right? And it's just like a, a business contract that you're done with, right? All you've, the business deal is no good. So, <laughs> right, I'm out of here. <clears throat> but I mean, that's the point that I think where for us, uh, the suffering has meaning. It has that redemptive training aspect to it. And I think for guys, you know, guys deep down want challenges. They want 
the the desire they want to complete tasks right they want to they want to have a, a a goal and to complete that goal yeah because that's how guys are made that's that's what that's their their way of going out and sort of uh you know tilling the garden so to speak right um i think that the woman respects that when a man can do that i just think we have to be really careful about um not caving into and i'm not saying you're doing this i'm just saying the, your question earlier about um about women and, and should we be more receptive to this kind of stuff mm -hmm. i just i'm i'm nervous about the <clears throat> the idea that um the solution would be to you know if men would adopt more more feminine things that that i disagree with because i, yeah. because I just think that on an individual level, it might be the case that maybe I'm too bullheaded and I need to listen to, you know, some area where I'm messing up. But on the whole, I don't think that that's the the problem in, in the church or in society is is that. So what, what, could you could you go along with saying something like, you know, the place to do that would be in your prayer corner uh, in front of your icons while as on your wife and that that should then lead to in your relationship with your wife or your girlfriend or your, your, you know, in, in relation with women that you're actually far more masculine, far stronger. Like that's how, you know, you're doing it right. Uh, is that you can actually meet that makes sense. women that in makes a sense. far more clear. I'm just thinking powerful, of like, so if way. I get on Twitter and I see, for example, uh, people from Fordham or from uh, uh, the Phoebe center or whatever that are pushing uh, feminism in the Orthodox church, and their whole argument is, we, we have never been listened to women are displaced. The church is too masculine. I mean, Francis just okay. said like two weeks ago, Christianity is too masculine. It's got to be more feminine. Right. So I'm just talking about this kind of yeah. stuff on the, on the public, you know, global scale. Yeah. Um, but Absolutely. on the individual remedial scale, you know, I might go to my priest in confession and say, Hey, uh, I was way too, you know, uh, angry with Jamie this week. I didn't listen to her. You know, I argued with her too much. He might say, well, you need to do this, 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 you know, medicine like you're talking about. Yeah, exactly. So that brings me to, I think, what, what I wanted to talk about with you uh, specifically um, was, uh, how should I put this across? Uh, the reason why I reached out to you, actually, was there was a discussion on a Telegram group for the podcast that I run called Iron Sharpens Iron where you're often put forward as an example, as a person who's controversial in some way. Uh, and I, I, the way I see it is you um, value truth and you think that truth is arrived at through strong masculine discussion uh, or deeper truth is arrived at in that way. And bad ideas should be pointed out explicitly. Um, and I think that maybe part of the confusion might come because people see the way that you discuss on YouTube and then they think that they should go and talk to, you know, their parents the same way or something like that uh, or, or, or something like that. So maybe what, what, what I could start with is saying, um, do you differentiate between how you approach a discussion on a, with it, like an atheist on YouTube and, and how you do it in your personal life with people that you're in a relationship with? Yeah. I think one thing to remember would be like um, roles in society, right? Like, if I'm talking to my superior, it's not appropriate for me to uh, interrupt them and tell them that they're being ridiculous or an idiot or something like that. If I'm talking to my peers, there's nothing inherently wrong with that, right? Um, and that's just kind of, again, the natural order, right? So you and I are peers. We're roughly the same age group. I don't work for you. You're not my dad. I don't have, you know, uh, you're not the president of my country, right? I, I don't owe you like a, a deference of like 
natural authority. Mm-hmm. Um, my priest, if he were to come in, it would be very inappropriate for me to interrupt him and say, well, you're being idiotic, right? That wouldn't, because that's going against sort of, uh, well, not just the natural order, but it's going against even the supernatural hierarchy that God has in place. Yeah. Um, there is a, there is appropriate way to go about disagreeing with, or even, uh, rebuking a superior that does, there is a call for that. And in fact, at times it's a sin not to do that. Right. Like if a superior were to come into the room and say, uh, well, I'm your, uh, priest, I'm your spiritual authority. Uh, I command you to, um, you know, I don't know, give, uh, give me all your money because I'm your superior. Mm-hmm. Well, that would be an overstepping of his authority and that would be wrong for him to do it. And it would be wrong for me to go along with or be complicit in something like that. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of basic ideas of like how we're supposed to understand interactions and what's appropriate in society. And, you know, it would be inappropriate for my wife to come and just get up in my face and start yelling at me, given the fact that like I'm her superior, right? Doesn't mean that I have the right to abuse her, but still there's a, ro- a role that's appropriate and inappropriate there. So I would say you're right that the way that, yeah, with, that I might interact with or disagree with somebody on the internet or in a blood sp- And also keep in mind too, that when we do something that's like an open forum, that's a free for all. Nobody's forcing them to call in. Nobody's forcing them. And they're on my home court. So I have the right to say, all right, <laughs> we're not going to listen to this. You're not, you know, you're, you're avoiding the issue, blah, blah, blah. Uh, if I called into their show, I'd be on their home, home court. They can boot me if they want to. Right. So again, there's a lot of, and a formal debate is not the same thing as an informal debate, mm-hmm. informal debates and discussions and things like this, but you'll notice in the formal debates, uh, most of the time, 99% of the time that I've done those with prominent Muslims or atheists, I handle that in a very specific ordered, ordered way. There's not a lot of ad hominem or rhetoric. It's mainly argumentation. So, uh, I come out of the world of philosophy. Not everybody does, you know, in philosophy class back in the day, we had debate club. I was involved in debate club for three years of college. So, um, that's where I come from. That's my milieu. That's what I was kind of raised with. So that might be something more natural to me. Um, and other people don't know debate. They're not interested in it. They're not familiar with it. They might see it as abrasive or controversial or whatever. But to me, it, do- it doesn't seem to be controversial. It's just kind of who I am, where I am, and, and the way I operate. doesn't mean that I think that debate and rational discourse is the only way that people come to truth. It's a lot of ways that people come to truth. Sometimes people have a death in their family, and that leads them to, to Christ or to orthodoxy. Sometimes uh, you know, they go to a, a beautiful liturgy and that leads them to the, the aesthetics uh, impress them. Right. And that gets them interested. So there's all different types of ways that people might <clears throat> come into the truth. And in the history of the church, we've seen all kinds of different people with different approaches. You know, St. Justin Martyr is called Justin the philosopher. Mm-hmm. So he was interested in philosophy and, and how that might <clears throat> convince people. Paul uses philosophy in Acts 17 reasons with the unbelievers <clears throat> so i don't think that it's the only way or the sole way or even the best way per se but uh you know it's just who i am and what i do um but uh, no I don't, I don't apologize for debate in itself or uh for even being quote controversial i if there's something specifically i did wrong i can apologize for it and i've done that before mm-hmm. yeah i really like what you said you pointing out like the the natural roles that you find yourself, the situation that you're in as well, you know, whether you're a philosopher or, you know, if you're a 16 year old kid who's still like, you know, struggling to find your way in life, maybe you shouldn't be out there telling your teachers or your parents like what they should be doing and how they're, you know, doing whatever. So it's really about being aware of who you are and where you're at and your role. What is your natural role to be? Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
that, yeah, that professors is a good example because I, I was bad about that when I was 18, 19. I would debate with my professors all the time, <clears throat> which was inappropriate. Mm -hmm. It was not the right way to go about that. But I was, you know, super arrogant, 18, 19, 20 year old philosophy student. So, um, so I'm not saying that I'm not guilty. I've done that before. Uh, but, but they were probably wrong back then or what? Like what, what would have well, happened? The if professors were wrong, but that doesn't mean that I wasn't still an arrogant, you know, kid. So what I mean, you think would have been different if, if you met an 18 year old and he was receptive to you uh, and you saw he was like having this arrogant attitude towards his, uh, towards his professors, what kind of advice would you give to that 18 year old today? <clears throat> I would say, even if you're, you're correct, there's no point in, in doing this. It's not, it's, it's not, it's just not appropriate. Um, there might be cases. I think the problem is not whether it's right or wrong. It's rather the wisdom to know when and to do it and when to not do it. So yeah. let's say, for example, we're in class and the professor's uh, teaching. Mm -hmm. If I keep interrupting and raising my hand to try to debate him, that's not really appropriate, right? It's not, it's not a wise interaction, even if I'm correct. But let's say the teacher says, all right, I've given you uh, my arguments for atheism. Do we have any theists in the class who'd like to present their theistic arguments? Then it would be appropriate. You know what I mean? So I think when you're young, you don't really have the wisdom and the um, the savvy of interactions and when it's appropriate. And I think because people now, the younger you go, the more those kids live on the internet, mm -hmm. they even they have even less social skills and figuring out when it's appropriate to do what. So so a lot, all that plays into it. <clears throat> yeah. And we're just so disconnected from natural, organic human relationships, not just the internet, yeah. but also large cities, I would say. Oh, absolutely. It's like things are, you know, so me and my wife, we've been living in Copenhagen, both of us for 20 years. And now we've yeah. moved out into a tiny little town with 300 people. We're right next to the church. There's one little shop. Uh, and so if you want to like, you know, know whatever's, what it's happening, like, you know, everybody that, you know, there's just a natural way of life happening here. And it's so clear how, in the city, you're like, it makes you crazy. You actually become insane living in these big cities because things are just so fragmented and disconnected and you're yeah. living like sardines packed into these apartments oh, yeah, yeah. of each other. Um, it's, 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 yeah, it's dis it's alienating and, and, and there isn't this natural embeddedness and, and feeling of connection with other human beings around you. Well, even the city life, like I was watching this documentary a couple of days ago with Michael Caine and he was talking about what it was like growing up uh in the 50s and 60s in britain and when he got got to be famous when he was starting to get roles and he was like he was just he was comparing it and contrasting it to the way it is now and it was like to him being a i guess a boomer and and trying to explain that you know in the 60s you know he was like we were out every night meeting people all the time i go to this club i go to this place met people all the time and anytime you wanted any interactions or anything he's like you didn't even call him you would just go meet him yeah. and he was talking about just how crazy different it is now to where it's like you know people don't even do this anymore and it was just like blowing his mind and i was thinking yeah i mean i'm, I'm not even a boomer but i can see from like the late 90s um and i grew up both in a small town and in a, in a big town so i, I had the mm -hmm. contrast in the 90s of both mm -hmm. so um it's definitely much more wholesome like you said you know in a small town setting out of these because the big cities have gotten even worse than they were even in the 90s yeah so i'm experiencing even here in denmark that there's a whole lot of young men especially that are looking for they're seeing like this is all crazy none of this makes sense this stuff isn't working 
for some of them, there's just some little point of input where Christianity comes into their life and they start searching online and then they find orthodoxy. And mm-hmm. then they go and like, look, and then they pitch up at like some Greek or Romanian church somewhere. And I'm like, hey, you know, what's this? There's no one that speaks really their language, but like they they kind of, they, they're really keen and interested. Um, so one of the challenges, of course, is like a lot of these ethnic churches aren't really ready to give a product catechesis to these people. And so, um, and so a lot of them are getting it from the internet, which is, right. has great parts to it, but is not so great as well. Also has uh, drawbacks, yeah. What, what do you? What can we do about this, Jay? What do you? Th- how, what are your thoughts about the situation, and and how are we? How are we working with it? Yeah, there's no easy answer to this. A lot of people have been saying this too uh, for you know seven, eight, ten years that a lot of people can only find orthodoxy via the internet, and then the catechesis is difficult because, like you said, a lot of parishes are uh, he- heavily ethnic and. I don't know that, that there's an easy answer to this. I think it's just going to take time because as people come into orthodoxy and then as time allows them to be better trained, um, you know, I you won't need to hear what Jay Dyer says about orthodoxy. And I don't have any problem um, stepping out of that role. I, you know, I didn't intend to get on the internet and be the, uh, a popular, you know, uh, orthodox YouTuber apologist. It wasn't my intention. It was just sort of a thing that kind of snowballed. It happened, but I'm happy to uh, recede into the background and, I, I would, I think it's much more wholesome and healthy for people to get that catechesis at the local level from the spiritual fathers, if, when they can, and if they can, and hopefully that will get better because like you said, sometimes it's not good. Uh, there's a lot of deficiencies there. There's a lot of uh, priests that didn't get good catechesis and theological formation themselves. Um, I just think time will, will fix that because a lot of the new guys that have been coming in, for example, some of the people that we helped to convert back in 2017, 18, I mean, they're about to graduate seminary. They're super solid. You know, they're super based. So they're going to be priests pretty soon, hopefully, Lord willing. And I think that they're going to be able to, you know, train people, lead people. So it's just a thing that takes time. And then more and more strong men in parishes will be the way that they can set up the right catechesis at the local level that's the key so i think hopefully ideally internet catechesis as bad as it is you know whatever if it can be just like a signpost that tells guys to look here Mm -hmm. then hopefully over time maybe in the next five years a lot of parishes will have established a kind of solid theological catechesis that would be ideal yeah no i'm as bad as it is but i also got to say how amazingly fantastic and powerful it is as well uh, I, I I really sometimes wonder, like, how is it possible that I, you know, my father has dedicated his entire life to God as a Protestant pastor minister, and he's searched the deepest, most, you know, kind of he's really dedicated his life to to becoming the best Christian that he can possibly be, but he never had the opportunity to find orthodoxy, and so the thing that you know, it just never, it wasn't, a, it would never occur to him. It never, it yeah. wasn't, you know, it, it for him was like, there was these Greeks somewhere in South Africa, right? right. Where, where he lived, like, it just didn't make sense. So, so the fact that it's suddenly flooding into the West right now in a way that's never happened, you know, for it's for a thousand years, it hasn't been possible for Westerners really to find out about orthodoxy. So for me, there's almost something eschatological about this. Uh, I, I think I would say it's like, it, it seems to be too much, 
It's, and, and the only explanation I can have is like, we're getting this because we need it. Because we're going to need it. Uh, we're going to need the strength and we're going to need strong men. It's not easy to take those decisions as a man today in society to, to move towards orthodoxy. There's a lot of things that you're going to give up and get right. rejected by social circles and stuff like that. But I see like really, really good guys who are making this that decision. Like for, yeah. for, if your heart's in the right place and you, you understand what orthodoxy is, that's where you're going to go. And and I think you're doing a great job, Jay, in, in putting that case forward. I, I don't know if you've seen it, but I've seen a study where they looked at people who are converting to Orthodox in the last five, 10 years. And what was the number one name of people who uh, that had been influenced them? And your name was on the top of that list. Uh, and and, and I, I think you're right. Like, yeah, sure. Some of these people are not seeing like the kind hearted, compassionate side of Orthodoxy in the first interview that they see with T, T Tom Jump or whatever was that was the first interview I saw with you. That like also was really an informal debate, guy. by the way. Right, that was informal debate, not a formal debate. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, wow, okay, this is really interesting. Um, but you know, uh, it well, was there's entertaining. A, there's another element too that so a lot of people that don't engage in this sphere, uh, they're not familiar with what the conversation, the discourse is like in the world of atheism or in the world of Islam. So, for example, in the world of Islam, um, it's very much a lot of machismo. It's a lot of uh, smack talking, right? It's like when guys go out on the basketball court, right? When guys are playing basketball, there's a lot of talking smack, right? That's just how guys do. On, I mean, I, I grew up playing basketball and all, you know, that's what you're used oh. to as a guy. You, you talk smack, right? And I'm not saying it's good, but it's the reality of in the world of, say, debating Muslims and whatnot, if you don't come with confidence and some degree of machismo it's sort of like the the muslim the arab mind is not going to listen to you or, or pay any attention to you but if you show that you're not afraid you're not scared you're the insults don't bother you don't care um they're a little more apt i think to listen to to something like that um you know if, if you're engaging with atheists and you're not afraid you're not on the defensive i think that uh that in a way kind of speaks to a lot of people who otherwise wouldn't listen. So the point of debates for those that don't know, isn't really necessarily to convince the opponent. It, yeah. it might, in some cases it has, that's rare. Uh, but the purpose of the debate is really for the audience to hear for the audience to, to listen to the argumentation. So uh, I typically just assume that my audience can kind of look past, uh, you know, jabs and jokes and rhetoric, which has always been a part of, of classical debate. Uh, obviously it can go too far you can get too too extreme or whatever but no i mean debate's a masculine thing church fathers debated um it, it's part of classical western pedagogy um nothing inherently bad about debate so yeah it's just now you mentioned just Justin look, Lotter, hey, I, I think i get tired of it honestly like i actually i mean we've been doing debates for five years with prominent people right atheists <laughs> muslims roman catholics whatever I get tired of it. It gets, it gets old uh, mainly because it's sort of like you always hear the same thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, it seems like sometimes it gets like, if you've had the same debate with atheists over five years or with Roman Catholics at a certain point, they kind of start getting really mad at you. Like the, it's, it's no longer about the issues. Now it's like they're after you. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> maybe, maybe debate has kind of served its purpose for a few years and maybe now it's time to step away from it. And I, I'll probably actually take, I have one more pretty prominent Muslim that I'm debating in January. And I'll, I'll probably will take a, a long de a break from debating just because it's kind of. <clears throat> okay. It just seems like the same old debate every time. It's like, how many times do I have to have the same? You know what I mean? 
I have I have a guy uh, that I I was I, I'd like you to have a debate with. Let's uh, if you're if you're up for it. I started Manifesto, my business, with a guy who is a Zoroastrian. It was before I was a Christian oh, myself. Wow. And he calls himself a Zoroastrian. <laughs> okay. I'm not convinced he's a real Zoroastrian, uh, but he's a, he's a Swedish philosopher, and okay. he's also. I would say, I think I can say publicly, like he's also something of an entertainer. Uh, he's been a judge on the Swedish pop idol program. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, so he <laughs> he has a really colorful personality. Well, it sounds um, like a colorful debate. So I might. Yeah. Might, yeah. So okay. if, you're, if you're up for that, um, I'm going to, I'd love to send an email to him and you and see if we can, if we can I'll make that happen. It could just be a discussion. Um, he's been very involved in the men's movement in Sweden um huh. and and very engaged there but there's definitely a lot of stuff that you guys i think would could okay. get into disagreeing about as well so his name's yeah, well, i'm definitely open to talking to you know we, we've talked to everybody so i'm open to that okay well thanks so much jay i really appreciate you taking the time to have a conversation i found it very helpful and useful and again just thank you for for the work that you're doing um i have several friends who follow everything that you do uh, and and get a lot of value out of it. Um, and I, I've got to say, from diving into your work, I, I've just grown more in my appreciation of I, the way I see it. This is my very first impression in this conversation. I, I said to the guys, like, this guy's role is he's a philosophical debater and he's really good at it and he's doing it well and he's doing it to the glory of God. So so thank you, Jay. That's great. Well, thank you, man. I really appreciate it. It was a great conversation. I, I look forward to chatting again.